Each spring, under the cover of darkness and guarded by members of the Italian Coast Guard, 62-year-old Chiara Vigo slips on a white tunic, recites a prayer, and plunges headfirst into the crystalline sea off the tiny Sardinian island of Sant'Antioco. Using the moonlight to guide her, Vigo descends up to 15 meters below the surface to reach a series of secluded underwater coves and grassy lagoons that the women and her family have kept secret for the past 24 generations. Hey, it's Yulia, and this is Going Places. On the show today, we learn about the story of the world's rarest silk with writer, editor, and now a book author, Elliot Stein. Elliot and I first got to know each other through our shared passion for the types of stories that reveal something about a place through the lens of tradition and unique cultural practices. Elliot has edited a few of my stories at BBC Trouble, where he currently serves as the deputy editor, and where he started a column called Custom Made that highlights cultural custodians preserving vanishing customs. Elliot has recently completed a book inspired by this column that will be published this fall. Congratulations, Elliot. The book is called Custodians of Wonder, Ancient Customs, Profound Traditions, and the Lost People Keeping Them Alive. In this book, Elliot traveled to 10 countries on five continents to profile the lost people alive, maintaining a distinct cultural wonder. In this difficult time, for many of us, this conversation has given me a sense of joy and lightness that I haven't felt in a while. Um, Thank you, Elliot, for that, and I hope that our listeners will enjoy it. In this conversation, you're going to hear about our shared passion for telling stories about people preserving cultural traditions, like the last remaining sea silk seamstress in Sardinia and Japan's craft soy sauce brewer that still makes shoyu in a traditional way. We discuss what book writing process was like for Elliot and hear more about his upcoming book. We also talk about Elliot's passion of helping people not typically found on pages of travel magazines get published in BBC Travel and why you shouldn't get into book writing business for money. If you want to learn more about Elliot and receive updates on his upcoming book, follow him on Instagram at elliot.stein and we'll also link to his Instagram in the show notes. This episode and the entire season of the show is brought to you by Visit Jordan. Be sure to visit myjordanjourney.com to learn more about Jordan. That's myjordanjourney.com. All right, now let's get started with our conversation with Elliot. Hi, Elliot. Welcome to the show. I'm so, so excited to, to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is such a wonderful podcast, and it's always nice to talk to you again, Yulia. Absolutely. Yeah, I look forward to meeting you again um, in New York when the when the show comes around in January. Um, so let's get right into the story that I'm so excited to, uh, uh, to, to discuss. So the story we're about to uh, hear is a story for BBC Travel's custom-made column, which you've actually started at the publication, and it's called The Last Surviving Sea Silk Seamstress. It had so many beautiful threads I found. You know, it was talking about a rare tradition. It was also exploring a dedication to one's craft. It was talking about love for nature, even about empowering women and an intrigue, right? Will this tradition uh, continue? 
And I also love the quote you had in there from Chiara, uh, who is the main character in the story. The women of the world are not for sale. <laughs> oh my God. When I read that, I was like, yeah, yes, that is so beautiful. So may I ask you please to read an excerpt from the story for us uh, to get us started and then we'll discuss it a bit. Sure, I'd be happy to. This is this is new for me, so I hope I uh, hope I do it justice. Um, okay. Each spring, under the cover of darkness and guarded by the members of the Italian Coast Guard, 62-year-old Chiara Vigo slips on a white tunic, recites a prayer, and plunges headfirst into the crystalline sea off the tiny Sardinian island of Sant'Antioco. Using the moonlight to guide her, Vigo descends up to 15 meters below the surface to reach a series of secluded underwater coves and grassy lagoons that the women and her family have kept secret for the past 24 generations. She then uses a tiny scalpel to carefully trim the razor-thin fibers going from the tips of a highly endangered Mediterranean clam known as the noble pin shell, or pina nobilis. It takes about 100 dives to harvest 30 grams of usable strands, which form when the mollusk's secreted saliva comes into contact with salt water and solidifies into keratin. Only then is Vigo ready to begin cleaning, spinning, and weaving the delicate threads. Known as byssus, or sea silk, it's one of the rarest and most coveted materials in the world. Today, Vigo is believed to be the last person on earth who knows how to harvest, dye, and embroider sea silk into elaborate patterns that glisten like gold in the sunlight. Ah, oh, that is so beautiful. Such beautiful words as well i also appreciated the the craftsmanship of of the story and the and the choice of words and for our listeners we're going to link to the story in the show notes so um elliot just read us just set us up with the opening uh, of the story but there is a lot a lot more to it so definitely go check it out and read it um what do you love about this story i love kiara i love the tradition um you know, when, when you find a story like this, it's it's not about the writer. The writer's job here is to be invisible. It's all about highlighting the person, the tradition, the craft, and how it has shaped the place in some way. And that's that's kind of what I live for, is to tell these stories and to maybe amplify these voices that a lot of the world wouldn't know. And to be honest, a lot of Sardinia doesn't know about it. Um, a lot of Italy doesn't know about it. It's this tiny community um, on an island off of an island that's the last place that was known to carry on this tradition mm-hmm. and um, I just love being able to introduce readers to Chiara who's such a powerful sort of mystical woman um, who almost exists from another time and mm-hmm. um, you know it's it's sort of getting to meet her is like watching a secret mm-hmm. you you see these things unfold in front of you with kind of her deftly weaving at the loom and threading these fibers and it's sort of just you know gives me shivers even thinking about it i could not imagine the process how intricate and like microscopic almost it is because in a couple of places in the story you mentioned several times that she uses her fingernails to weave a thread like just imagining how um delicate that process is is just incredible um right it's it's incredibly time consuming i mean we, we get into this in the article but mm-hmm. it takes months and months and in, in many cases years to create these these patterns but the actual 
you know, you get a piece of, of business, which sort of looks like a clump of hair, but mm -hmm. to extract the actual part they're able to use on, on the pattern, that itself takes months. Mm -hmm. And I almost felt like I was doing the story an injustice. I, I filmed a small video with an iPhone just to sort of show people the general process. But you see her working under this incredibly powerful mirror underneath mm -hmm. that, that sort of amplifies how big these threads are, but otherwise you'd never be able to see them. It's so incredible. Um, I, you know, one of the things that I love about having this show and interviewing people is that you start seeing threads and, 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 mm -hmm. and common themes almost. And what I often hear from storytellers like you is that the writer is not the story. The writer is the vessel for the story. And I just love that sentiment so much. You know, I myself identify with it as well. And I, and I loved hearing, hearing it from you. Um, how did you find her story? How did you even learn about Kiara in the first place? Yeah, great question. Um, I had the fortune of living in Sardinia for about three years. Um, this was many years ago, but when I was there, I, I wrote several guidebooks to Sardinia. Um, I went to the town and, I, you know, I had always sort of heard whispers about this, this mystical kind of creature. And when I was there back in 20, let's 2008, 2009, mm -hmm. um, she wouldn't meet with me. It's a sort mm -hmm. of thing where I was an outsider and it took a lot of time and energy to sort of build that relationship. Mm -hmm. So years later, when I, um, I was living in Berlin and I thought to myself, you know, I, I sort of stay awake uh, year after year and kind of think about, well, I wonder whatever happened to Kiara mm -hmm. and her story. And I, I saw nothing written about it. Mm -hmm. And so I just sent her a hopeful email. Um, and that turned into eight months of correspondence. Mm -hmm. And after eight months of correspondence, I took two planes to a tiny island, took a train, walked across a lagoon that was filled with flamingos. And finally introduced myself and she was kind enough to meet with me and I spent a week with her. Um, and during that time, as, as she told me, she, she told me things about her process that she never told anyone outside the family. She took me to the secluded wow. lagoons where she and her family for 24 generations have harvested this, this material. Um, and you know, I've sort of sworn to never explain where those places are, but, um, I think like so many of the stories that I love to tell, there's a level of relationship building and trust building that is kind of um, makes these stories sing. Because without that, you, you're sort of left with a very superficial view of who this person is and what they do. But in order to get the passion behind it, the process behind it, and in some cases, the pain behind it, you need to have a, a level of trust and a, a relationship with the subject mm -hmm. that kind of goes beyond the transactional journalism, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes so much sense. And I'm getting goosebumps as you're saying this, Elliot, because mm. that is something I believe in so deeply. And, you know, in my own work too, it shows up, for example, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing stories about the Bedouin community in, in Wadiram, which is one of my favorite places on earth. And I'll never stop saying that. Um, it's the same, right? It's that, it's that idea of really developing relationships with, it took me years to build that relationship with those people. 
when eventually I, I did one of my first stories, you know, about this community. So it's that same thing. And people often ask me as well, well, how do you do these stories? How do you find those people? And it's honestly, it's years of building relationships right. before you ever, you know, write the first word or take the first photograph. And I think um, it's like in photography, this shows up. Uh, I often say this, that the portrait doesn't lie your relationship with the subject will show up, that energy will show up in the image. If it's somebody that you've just mm. met and you didn't even say hello to and you just took their portrait without without any interaction, that will show up in the portrait. If the person you've photographed is someone that you know on some more intimate level, that will show up in the portrait as well. And I think what this is what you're alluding to too here with your story that's, level of knowing somebody of having that connection it shows up and that's why this story is so beautiful and so intricate and there's so many layers to it it's because you had that relationship with her you've you've been talking to her for eight months before you ever came to her island um i wonder why do you think she agreed to eventually tell you the story um it could have been my persistence it could could have been that i (laughs) i um I spoke a bit of Sardo, which is sort of mm. the the language you speak on the island, in mm. addition to Italian. I think more than anything, um, at the end of my visit, she said something to me really interesting, which is that she recognized in me a sort of curiosity and mm. um, just general interest in others that I think she has. So mm. it could be that she saw something of herself in me, um, mm. which I think it is a huge compliment. Um, but I, I'm not sure. I think it's, uh, you expressed this very beautifully a moment ago when you were talking about photography, but I think that, you know, a journalist's job really is to be a mirror for someone, I think. You are trying to to magnify their own light in a kind of way. And I think that perhaps there was a sort of energy where she um, she felt that I was allowing her to do that. That is so beautiful. Elliot, we have to... Oh my goodness, a journalist's job is to magnify somebody's light. That is such a beautiful Oh, thank such you. Such a beautiful way to put it. Uh, thank you. I will I will I will take it forward with me. Um, so the story was published in 2018. Do you know how Kiara is doing now? And the reason why I'm asking that is because for for our listeners who haven't yet read the story, but please do, definitely go check it out. There is a question at the end of it, right? The question of what's going to happen with this tradition, because um, in this story, the uh, the tradition is that it, it goes down the matrilineal um, uh, uh, way, right? So every every daughter, granddaughter, niece, uh, all the women in the family are the ones who 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 would take on the tradition, but Kiara's own, I believe it was daughter, is not sure she wants to continue. So there is a question mark if that's going to go on. So do you know uh, what's uh, what's happened to Kiara since uh, the story was published? A bit, yes. And, and you, you've expressed it very, very nicely. So it's 24 generations of this thread. And she has a daughter herself. And the tradition mm-hmm. is that it goes from daughter to daughter. Mm-hmm. But at the time that I wrote the story, her daughter didn't live on the island, didn't even live in Italy or Sardinia, but was in Dublin. And I was able to get a hold of her on the phone. And she she admitted that she felt incredibly torn, that she said her life is her own. You know, it's 
like so many people who who belong to a family where something is passed down generation through generation, there's a sort of sort of weight to it. Mm. She herself was not sure that she wanted to, to maintain their tradition, but um, I don't want to spoil the last scene of the story, but something happens in the last scene of the story that somehow connects me to Kiara. Mm. And what Kiara told me was, um, and this was back a number of years ago, was if and when I ever have a child to come back to Kiara to meet with her again so that she can take this thing that she's given me and create one for my kid so and that that's not included in the story but um so uh fast forward a couple years i'm now a dad um and i reached back out to kiata for a book that i'm that i've just finished um and i was able to talk to kiata and kiata still practices Mm. but she no longer meets with anyone from the press I was essentially the last interview that she did. Um, and a lot of good things happened from that interview that um, are alluded to in the story. But she is now solely focused on maintaining this tradition only for the people on the island. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if her daughter is has been persuaded one way or the other or where she's living. But mm-hmm. um, it, does, it does give me some sort of peace and happiness knowing that she's still weaving at the loom using her fingernails to extract this this fiber um and that it hasn't totally vanished yet. wow i'm just speechless now that is such a beautiful turn of of, of the story so yeah. do you think you will take your your child uh, to meet kiara sometime perhaps when he's a little older he's two so uh that's a, <laughs> a lot of flights and trains um but yeah i think i think one day i would love to um you know it's so much so much of of the joy in meeting people like Kiara and getting to to introduce them to other people, including maybe family members, is I like to feel that it sort of spurs the sense of, of wonder and curiosity about the world and kind of how rich um, humanity is, you know, that mm-hmm. there is someone on an island off an island with flamingos weaving this thing and diving under moonlight. You wrote such a gorgeous story for BBC Travel about a tradition in Austria um, mm-hmm called Blaudruck, is that pronounced correctly? Blaudruck, Blaudruck. Blaudruck. Um, and it's, it's a kind of centuries-old dying practice. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, I think that these sort of textures add a richness to to the world and to culture that I think more people should should get to know. So so I would love to take my kid there one day, yes. Mm. Yeah, I, I think you and I talked about this before we started recording, that we, we share this passion for you know, telling stories of people who are preserving or reviving somehow these cultural traditions around the world. And you, you said it so beautifully that it's it adds to that understanding of the richness of humanity uh, that we have. And I wonder, well, two things. I wonder first, how did you become uh, interested in that particular niche in the, in the storytelling wor- uh, world? And then second, how do you not, um, because especially when you're covering stories that, you know, the last remaining something on earth, how do you prevent it from being a story of, uh, despair is perhaps a too strong of a word, but that idea that these traditions are disappearing all over the world and the world is becoming more and more homogenized so when we cover those stories, how do you 
you know, how do you celebrate them, I guess, without losing hope, if that makes sense? I don't know. Does that make that, sense, that question? Yeah, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. And it's it's a beautiful question. So thank mm -hmm. you for that. I think, um, I, I guess the, the first part of the question is, it you, you asked sort of, how do I... How did you become interested in that? Yeah. Um, so completely by chance, I was um, about 22 years old or so, and I was in another place in Italy. I had the fortune of working as a tour guide, actually, right mm -hmm. after I graduated college. Um, and so I was in a place called Burano, which is an mm -hmm. island in the Venetian Lagoon. And I happened to come across, it was a chance encounter, this um, incredibly sweet woman who was 90 years old and could no longer see. And she brought me inside her home and showed me the different sorts of um, creations that she had made that were hanging on her wall. I had never seen anything like this. And it sort of looked like sea foam that was, that was woven. Um, and she let me know that for hundreds of years, the women on this island had created a very rare form of lace that no one else in the world knew how to create. And for a hundred or so years, this was, it was the height of fashion in the Western world. It was the boast of royalty. It was not just kind of any old lace, but this was, it was a big deal. And. I sort of understood through her that this tradition made by countless sort of anonymous women whose names you've never known have helped shape an island and also shape the people from it. Mm -hmm. And I guess this, this sort of chance encounter opened a kind of awakened a, a sympathy and a reverence for these people that still guides me. And so I've, that was the first travel story I ever wrote as a kid. Amazing. Um, but I, but I've never sort of forgotten about that encounter and just the idea that there's something to learn from these people and you know in the same way that we might look to elders for stories and these people have been somewhere that you will you and i will never be which is the past mm -hmm. um these people who have carried on traditions that have helped shape places that we're from are such treasures that um often kind of are left anonymous and their mm -hmm. stories aren't told and um i kind of wanted to help help spread that light that is so beautiful. And, and, and what you mentioned there about uncovering that sort of the way these traditions and these practices have shaped the places in some ways, right? And, and you, would, you would have never known probably walking on the streets of, of there that this tradition has, has shaped or, or has brought prominence to Venice uh, at some point. Of course. I mean, Burano is known as the sort of beautiful instagram worthy place where all of the little squat homes are painted in easter egg colors and um you know you go there and you take a picture and then you take the ferry back to back to venice it's a great day trip mm -hmm. but there's so much more beyond this i mean it's mm -hmm. not just that the colors of the houses are pretty and they reflect in the canals but mm -hmm. there's a richness to the life there that i think makes it what it is mm -hmm. and so you know these stories that I write, they're about the person, they're about their tradition, but ultimately they're sort of about what makes a place a place. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you kind of dig into, um, you know, what makes someone from this town in Kazakhstan different from this person in Kansas, there's so much there to uncover that I think these traditions, these customs, these sort of gentle, irrational, beautiful rites that humans do um, are really ingrained in us in a way that we might not understand until you work to unravel it. Yeah, that is so true. You know, what, what's 
what's been guiding kind of my work is is this this phrase that I came up with at some point, a deeper understanding of people and places. And that's, I think, what you're kind of alluding to as well, right? Is Yeah, that's why we got into this in the first place. I, <laughs> I resonate with that a lot. I resonate with that a lot. Um, so coming back to then the second part of that question, because that's something that I grapple with a lot too, right? Like, there are so many things around the world that are disappearing. And, you know, how do you report on that? Or how do you tell that story without, or or maybe there needs to be the gloom, that maybe gloom needs to be part of it. I don't know. What, how, how do you think about that? <laughs> I think very similar to you. I mean, we, we have this sort of sea of sameness, right? So you have, mm. you know, people in um, the far reaches of, of Mali and Manhattan who are all on TikTok. And there's a certain uniformity to, mm. to life in an ever-connected world that I think is, it's, it's beneficial, it's progress in, in a lot of ways, but it's also sort of deteriorating the things that make certain places unique. So I think, I think about it less in a doom and gloom sort of way, but more about it in a um, you know, so much of our time is spent looking forward, but just sort of maybe pleading with readers to take a moment to pause and reflect where we came from and how these things sort of made us who, who, who we are. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a certain sadness to the fact that these things are disappearing, but at the same time, that's inevitable. That's, that's mm -hmm. culture, right? I mean, yeah. culture, culture is an ever shifting force that, that's not to say all old things are good are are good and all new things are bad, but yeah. um, I think without sort of stopping to acknowledge that something is vanishing, um, that has a meaning and a purpose, then that's a loss. There is a question that I've been dying to ask an editor, and now yeah. is as perfect opportunity as ever to do that. So. With a lot of colleagues in the industry, uh, we have been discussing for a while now this idea that it seems that people are reading less and less uh, these days. And, you know, as you mentioned, TikTok, you mentioned, um, uh, we, we discussed this homogeneity and the fact that people are spending more and more time on short form video and less time on, on reading. I wonder, as somebody who's currently serving as the deputy editor at BBC Travel, do you see those trends on a large scale or how do you think about them? Uh, perhaps at BBC or perhaps, you know, as it relates to your own uh, work. Because um, sometimes I wonder, you know, we spend so much time developing these stories. It takes months and years sometimes to, to pursue something. And then you put a story out and then you wonder, well, does anybody even read it? <laughs> Yeah, you know? that's a that's that's a great question. Um, I guess the way that I look at it is, people will read it or they won't read it, mm. but you're going to do what you're going to do, right? I mean, mm. I think when you come across a story like like Chiara or or yours in in Austria, you're going to give it the attention and care that it deserves. Yeah. And if someone reads it, great. And if they read half of it, okay. But you're not going to not report that story and mm -hmm. give it give it the space that it deserves just because someone might be scrolling on their phone on the subway. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really actually optimistic. BBC travels um, sort of t average time spent on a story is really high. Oh, and I love to hear um, that. it's really high. And 
you know, without mentioning specifics, tons and tons of people are reading these stories. I mean, mm -hmm. people all over the world. And mm -hmm. perhaps that's one of the benefits to, to an international brand like BBC. But um, I think a lot more people read these stories and read them through than a lot of people might realize. So that gives me a lot of a lot of hope that we haven't forgotten totally how to how to read longer form narratives and that there's there's still people around the world who care about them. See, that's why you're the the great person to ask this question because I wouldn't have that context, you know, and that and, and I hope that, that that trend is is similar across other sites too. But um mm -hmm. it's you know, if if you take a look under the hood, it's it's actually really promising. Okay. I love that. I love that. Thank you. That that gives yeah. me hope. That gives me hope. And then also, you know, th that's when it, it also becomes this interesting discussion about multimedia work where, you know, you have, the, and, and I try to do this at least a little bit in, in my, in how I approach stories. Like you, you, you have the article, you, you write it, it's out now on, let's say BBC travel. And then you also do the Instagram post for it and maybe a reel and you try to like, put it into as many uh, formats as you can so that it reaches pe people in all kinds of different ways where, wherever they're at, right? Or even the, the podcast too, because some of the stories that I've done, I've read them out loud on the podcast. So that's another way to re reach somebody. So in that sense, you know, the, the realization I recently came to, and I was telling you before we start recording that I, I'm learning filmmaking and video now, I realized actually, because I've been so tied to my identity as a writer and photographer, like this is who I am, like that's all I am. And recently I realized, no, actually you're a storyteller. That's first. And then how you tell that story, that can change and that's okay. But before I was very tied to, no, you have to write these stories. That's what you do, you know? So it's an interesting shift that I'm kind of going through right now. Yeah, it's it's storytelling is storytelling, right? And um, without putting her on the spot, one of our colleagues at at, at the BBC that I, that I am friends with and sit next to, um, her native language isn't English. Mm -hmm. So when she first came over to the U.S., um, you know, I think she was self conscious enough about about her language ability that mm -hmm. she naturally gravitated toward um, video journalism. Mm -hmm. Though her, you know, her father was a journalist. Her passion is writing. So she said, you know, I'm going to become a journalist just because I'm not confident enough in in my writing that I think I can do this. Mm -hmm. But over the years, she's written more and more and more. And you see sort of a connecting line between her video journalism work and her narrated stories that I think mm -hmm. is so beautiful, mm -hmm. a sort of voice and essence that comes across regardless of medium. Mm -hmm. And so another way of looking at it for you is it's just another notch in your in your tool belt, right? Like you could tell stories in any different way. And it's it's a Yulia story. It comes through in a certain way, and it's 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 just another way of doing it. So, yeah. I think if anything, more people should probably try and branch out in the way that you are expanding and, and honing your craft. Um, and you know, I could certainly take a lot of lessons from you in that. <laughs> likewise, likewise, Elliot. You know, I always say that working with editors on editing the story is actually one of my favorite parts of the process uh, because inevitably. Most of the time, the story becomes so much better. And I, I just appreciate that so much, you know, because it's it's an interesting conversation, too, that, you know, when you spend so much time on, on, on creating the story, it's almost like 
you you become too close to it and you might not see some gaps or some things there that are obvious to someone else who hasn't spent so much time on it. And so I, I've loved every time that we've worked together. I really loved it because I see how, and I learned from that too, right? As a storyteller, I learned how you, you're making through the editing process, you're making the story so much better as well. So I really enjoy that. That's really nice to hear. <laughs> you know, it's, there were so many years that I was, I was a freelance journalist before I became in-house at BBC, but I think you and I share that bad sentiment together. There's nothing more frustrating than working on a story, submitting it, and then sort of one day seeing it online and an editor has essentially copy and pasted it and, and published it. Yeah. Um, one of the most enjoyable parts to me as a freelance writer was always getting feedback mm -hmm. and always working with an editor, bouncing questions around, improving it. And I find I found that those were the publications that I went back to time and time again mm -hmm. as kind of my first and second choices of where I wanted the story to live. Mm -hmm. And the places that would kind of just go through the motions and it would be this this uh, quiet silence that, mm -hmm. that would just happen, I... I sort you know, you, you question like, well, what's, what's the process here? What are we yeah. doing? This, isn't this kind of the whole job? And right. so, yeah, I, I very much identify with that. And I try to um, certainly remember that with every story that I write now on the other side of it. So I want to go now to a um, conversation about the book that you have coming out soon and you mentioned it um earlier so next year next fall you have a book coming out called custodians of wonder ancient customs profound traditions and the lost people keeping them alive and in this in this book uh you traveled to multiple countries on five different continents to to profile some of these people um that are keeping these traditions alive. And um, first of all, what a beautiful project, right? The culmination oh. of all this kind of passion and all, all these ideas that we've been um, talking about. I wonder, as someone who has an extensive career in the travel journalism space, you worked with so many different publications, you are currently serving as the editor at BBC Travel. How do you think that has prepared you for a project like writing a book? Oh, great question. Um, I don't know that anything can really prepare you for a project uh, <laughs> like, like this, to be honest. Um, but I think that there's, there's certainly a, a cohesive through line between um, the story that we started talking about and the book. So what happened was um, I was a freelance journalist. I was living in Berlin, Germany at the time. Um, I created this column for the BBC called Custom Made, which is all about these creative characters who are making the world a more interesting place. And so that can be sort of the last person alive who knows how to do a certain thing, or in some cases, the only person alive who knows how to do a certain thing. The general idea is somebody who is doing something that nobody else in the world is doing. So this story that we started talking about, the sea silk seamstress, um, through some sort of of luck or misguidance, it, it won this big award. Mm -hmm. And so as part of the award, um, you got to go and meet with different book agents. Mm -hmm. And so I had always sort of um, had in the back of my mind that the types of stories that I write for this column, it would be really beautiful one day to put them into a book. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so through some sort of luck or misguidance, an editor happened, I'm sorry, an agent happened to be interested. Um, and I was struggling with the proposal and my, my better half said, why don't you call it this? And within about 48 hours, I wrote a 50 page proposal and sent it out. Um, and so that's what the book is about. And so it's, it's about these sort of 10 people on five different continents in 10, 10 countries who are preserving what I view to be some of the rarest, most remarkable, most incredible traditions around the world. And they're the last person alive to do it. And it's all about how these, these things that we do create, um, create a place and how they shape a place. And so that's kind of the, the general idea of it. And it was, um, a complete labor of love and intensely hard and, um, difficult thing to manage in the middle of a pandemic and when you have a newborn baby, but it is finally, finally ready for the world to see it. And, um, couldn't be happy with it. And so it'll be coming out in about a little less than a year in autumn, 2024. And, um, I hope that people like yourself who seem to, to, um, have a shared kinship in this, this type of thing might appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I can't wait to, to see it. And I just, I can resonate or relate so much to this because so I, I get this feeling every time I see a story of mine out there in the world, right? It's like this almost like childlike, oh, my words are out here. Like they, here they are. And so if I extrapolate that to a project like a book and to imagine the all probably an incredulousness that you feel when you're like, this is my 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 baby and it's out now or it's going to be out soon it must be such a such an interesting feeling to to experience it is and you know the reason that i say there's nothing that can really prepare you for this um mm -hmm. you know i've i've written guidebooks before but i've never written a full length sort of narrative book mm -hmm. so this is the first one i've done um and i you know much to my employer's chagrin i love the process of it i, I completely <laughs> I adore writing books and you might connect with this based on what you've told me about sort of pursuing more longer form kind of storytelling and, and, and film, but it sort of takes the traditional 1200 word or 2000 or 3000 word stories that we type, we tend to write and you don't have the constraints on it anymore. So this book is 10 different chapters. Each chapter is about roughly 10,000 words. And as a journalist, it really allows you to dig into a subject and a history that I think was my favorite part of, of the process by far. And it's just, you learn something that excites you and you get to tell these stories in a much more richer, mm -hmm. much more rich, more nuanced way than you can in any online publication. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you're, you're reigniting my own aspirations because I've always had aspirations to write a book, but... I haven't. Well, I, I I've got some ideas on on what, but I think I need more. They need to burn a little bit more in the oven, if that makes sense. You know? Yeah. The you know the the thing that I quickly found is that unless you are intensely passionate about this project, you shouldn't mm -hmm. do it. You should not write a book unless you're very 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 committed to it. It's mm -hmm. it's a labor of love, right? I mean, and it's this was something that I happened to be very very passionate about, and I have a incredibly patient partner who sort of allowed me to travel around the world and do this while we, while we had a, a young, young kid. But, um, 
it's sort of a once in a lifetime opportunity that I think, um, you know, I was able to, to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned this a couple of times, but what were then some of the challenges or what, what did you find to be particularly hard? Um, well, in, in there's, I guess the way that, so there, there are 10 stories. Um, and the way that I sort of mapped it out, you obviously want some sort of geographical, geographical diversity. You want thematic diversity. Um, I happen to keep an actual Rolodex of dying traditions. I, I, I can tell you hundreds and hundreds of them. There's one, uh, gramophone repair left in downtown Istanbul. There's one, um, neon sign repair here in Manhattan, here in New York city. I think the first challenge is you identify what are the stories that are worth telling. And to me, in a world of dying traditions where culture is this ever-shifting thing, it's the story that really, really speaks to a place and speaks to a place's history and how it has impacted a place that are the ones that rise to the top. So that's the first challenge. Then the challenge is, of these 10 stories, given the window that you have to do it, how do you logistically do that? And how do you do that in a pandemic? So it's taking the places and the stories that are sort of evergreen and mixing in the ones that are thematic. Mm-hmm. So there's one story that I wrote and reported that only takes place once a year. Mm-hmm. So you know that you have to go there for that thing. There's one story that I wrote where the custodian could only meet me at a certain time of year. So that fixes that. Mm-hmm. And then it's just with sort of all of the travel restrictions that were happening in this time of uncertainty that you sort of mix in, how can I logistically do this? Hmm. So um, there's one place in the book where I stayed in a COVID hotel in the last place on earth that still had sort of a zero, zero um, COVID policy. And, hmm. you know, it's, it's, I think it adds, adds a richness to the story, but it's, that's the kind of challenges that I think you don't always prepare for, or hmm. a place that all of a sudden decides to close its borders or, a story that was supposed to be in the book that we couldn't make happen because of a ongoing civil war. So there's a lot of challenges, both logistically and sort of journalistically that in the same way that it took eight months to meet Kiara, it takes months of sort of behind the scenes legwork to make each story here happen just from a on the ground point. Mm-hmm. So I'm so glad that none of the challenges that you mentioned are a challenge of putting words on the page or like oh that was that was the easy part <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm glad to hear that because for me i think that also scares me just the sheer scale of the project you know but to your point i think if you're truly passionate about the the, the topic or the or the or, or the subject matter, and you have so many stories that that almost becomes the opposite, right? How do you how do you really hone in on the ones uh, that because you 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 only can tell ten out of the hundreds and hundreds that you have? So that's that is that is inspiring for me. That is that is encouraging. <laughs> that that's that's exactly right. And you know, I I had never written anything ten thousand words long before. Mm-hmm. Um, we just don't get the luxury, as you know, of having that kind of space mm-hmm. at BBC, New York Times, wherever. Um, so, you know, I, I, my agent suggested, why don't you make them about this long? Mm -hmm. And I was both excited about that, but also, you know, a little terrorized. What does 10,000 words look like? What does the narrative arc look like? Exactly. (laughs) Uh, can I write this much about a certain history of a certain thing? Mm -hmm. And I think as I'm sure you and so many other journalists have probably experienced, once you really get into the research of something, it's all about honing back. 
It's all about mm-hmm. focusing on what are the details that matter. And you end up with so much left on, on you know, the floor of yeah. all the things that couldn't fit into 10,000 words. And yeah. it's very similar to all the traditions that couldn't fit into this book. But um, yeah, you're just kind of reminded of, of how rich the world is and, and how rich these traditions are when you really sink your teeth mm-hmm. into them. Oh, that's so beautiful. I can't, I can't wait to see the, the final product, especially now knowing a little bit of the, the, the backstory of it. Um, so can you share some of the stories? I, I, I can't do too many specifics, but what I can say is that, um, so of the custom-made column, which is online, there are, there are 10 stories in this book. Um, six of them are totally new, and mm-hmm. four of them are expanded versions and of some of my favorite ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I found, you know, I, I sort of thought that that would be the biggest challenge. How do you make a story that has been told before new? Mm-hmm. But there are so many different sides to a lot of the stories that I've reported that a lot of people seem to resonate with that I think they will sort of be be just overjoyed to sort, I hope, to, to see in, in a different context, in a different light. Um, so many different details that can't fit into a, a BBC story. So it's, it, it's 10 countries, five continents, um, and some of these traditions are thousands of years old. Mm. Some of them are 200 years old, but they connect everywhere from rural Guinea to the frigid reaches of Scandinavia to Cuba um, to a mangrove forest in India and places that I've always dreamed of going, but maybe I've never had the chance to. So, Wow. That is that is very exciting. I'm I'm very excited about this book. Um, do you have one piece of advice to somebody who is perhaps uh, interested in writing a book or pursuing a big creative project like that? Like, what would you say to them if you had one thing that you could share with someone? Ooh, um, great question. You know, I, I don't know that I'm the best person to to address that because I think. You know, who am I to speak on someone else's creative process? But I, I think the one thing that connects a lot of people who have done similar things, it, it has to be something you're passionate about, right? Mm-hmm. So um, no first-time author gets rich out of the gate or, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to glamorize this in a way that is, not, that is not true. And any journalist knows this, but it's a lot of sweat. It's a lot of, you know, day on day in sort of a quarantine hotel. There's no glamour in that. Um mm-hmm. And I think when you're leaving behind, you know, a family and um, especially when you have a young kid there, you have to really want to do this and be invested in it in a way that I think that is the reward for you. So mm-hmm. I guess, th- I guess that's a long winded way of saying, don't do this for money. Don't do this for any sort of personal notoriety. Do it because it's something you love. Do it because we only have so much time on this planet and it's something that is meaningful to you. Oh, I love that. I love that. It, it, it resonates a lot. Yeah, we, we definitely, <laughs> we're not in this business for making money or getting rich. <laughs> That's oh, of course, yes. <laughs> but this idea of, you know, sometimes I feel like it's like welling up here. And it needs to come out. And that's, I think, right? When you have that impulse, that's something that you've been working on or thinking about or researching. And it's like, welled up in here and it needs to come out that's when you probably know that okay this is a project worth it's it's giving birth right it's it's Mm -hmm. uh it's introducing something into the world that you hope is 
resonates with people on some level and that you, if you think it's beautiful, then do everything you can to get it out there. Mm-hmm. I happen to be really, really lucky to have a, an agent who believed in it and it was, um, unwaveringly encouraging and patient. Um, cause you know, I, I had a lot of naive questions about how this process works. And, um, so that was a, a huge benefit to me. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, there is, by the way, a lot of resources too, cause I, I recently had a conversation with, uh, another guest on the podcast who has written a couple of books uh, already. And so we were talking about, you know, a little bit about the process of finding agents and, and et cetera. And she was mentioning that there's actually a lot of resources for people who are interested in in this in this process on how do you even find an agent or, or get in front of an agent short of, you know, winning an award and, and being exposed to that kind of situation. There's, for example, there's conferences, there's, all mm-hmm. kinds of communities around that. There's all kinds of workshops that you can take. So I think for somebody who might not be, let's say, in this kind of media world, uh, that that can sound very overwhelming and very like, well, I don't even know where to start. Um, I just want to say, don't get discouraged because there are a lot of resources online, even if you can, if you start Googling, you know, how do I find an agent? There is tons and tons of ways to get into this. But I think the, the, the first step is what you said, Elliot, actually, which is important is that that passion, that welling up of so, w- wanting to say something and then, you know, knowing that you're doing this because you need to do this, not because you want to make money or become famous or whatever. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that, that's exactly right. And you know, mm-hmm. book publishing is an entirely different world for me. My mm-hmm. my my career is is in sort of online travel journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've it was it was wonderful for me to sort of be a novice in this and and, and learn as I go. But you're exactly right. And um, you know, this was sort of a, a blessing that kind of came to me. But the conference that I took part in is called the Writers. Uh, it's Writers Digest. I think they have an annual conference. That's what and she mentioned too. That's the one that she mentioned, the other guest that I had. Oh my goodness. Okay. So, so that, that's the one. And um, the way that I sort of understand it is it's a maybe once a year event that I think generally takes place here in New York where mm-hmm. I think anyone can sort of sign up and mm-hmm. it's kind of like speed dating. So you have, you have an idea for a book, whether it's a memoir, a travel journalism, odyssey, whatever. And you have about a minute, a minute and a half, and you sort of speed pitch it to different agents. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's your elevator pitch. And so that's, you know, I think by winning this award, I think what I was able to do is they gave you a pass to attend this thing. Mm-hmm. And then the rest is up to you. So I kind of quickly wrote down, like, here's what the idea is. And, um, but that, that's, you know, that's open to anyone. I, I, don't, I don't want people to think that there's some sort of um, exclusive private property mm-hmm. into this that only a select few can do. Anyone can go to this thing. And gotcha. if nothing else, you can get feedback from an agent to help perhaps better shape your your idea to go again next year. I love that. I love that so much. You know, I'm, as soon as we get off the call here, I will go research Writer's Digest because I'm also, I also believe in serendipity and in science, Elliot. I really do. And so you're the second person now who, who tells me about yeah. Writer's Digest. So it's, it sounds that I need to look it up and we'll share a link to it in the show notes as well. So our listeners can, can check it out as well. So I might, I must ask you, and I hope you can actually tell this uh, story, but, um, 
a few of the images that you shared with us in preparation for the podcast, in one of them, you are standing next to a man uh, wearing an apron in what looks like a big wooden vat. Oh, yes, and yes, yes. And both of you are kind of holding your hands like this. So can you share the story behind this photo? What's happening there? Sure. So I, I'll, I'll start by saying, Yule, you were kind enough to ask me for photos. And it was such a nice <laughs> reminder that I actually have almost no photos of myself. Um, and uh, probably a good thing to do is to get more photos of myself. But this is one of my, a, a good friend and a person that I've written about. He's, he's a custodian. This is in Japan. Um, on the island of Shidoshima, which means Little Bean Island in Japanese. Mm. He is one of the last people on earth who creates soy sauce in the actual way that it's supposed to taste. So wow. chances are you and um, my neighbor and anyone else has never actually tasted real soy sauce wow. because after World War II, the entire process of it modernized um, because of the devastation of, of the war. And so the country essentially abandoned this thousands year old tradition to create a different chemically modified version of something that is so intrinsically rooted in their culture. Wow. And this is one of the last guys to do. So what he's standing in is called a kyoke, which is a wooden barrel made from cedar. And that is how traditional soy sauce ferments. So much the way that vinegar or wine or anything else that ferments is traditionally made. It's this kind of living, breathing, thing that is alive inside this wooden barrel that stays there for four years. So the way that he makes soy sauce, it's a four-year process. Whereas if you go to a supermarket and buy Kikoman, which is kind of the only soy sauce company that anyone has actually heard of, that's a three-month process. So in the time that they crank out, um, in the time that this person who's in the image cranks out one vat of it, the big guys are doing about, you know, 10 or 12. You know, it's interesting. I've actually heard about this before. I've heard, and I wonder, have you written this story on so, BBC so this or is, elsewhere? This is a story that I've that I've written as part of the custom made column. Um, okay. And 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 you can find it, I guess, there. Mm -hmm. But wonderful guy, really, really wonderful. And so, yeah, his you know his family has done this for generations. And I guess one of the benefits of being on an island, which happens to be where a lot of my stories take place, you're sort of away from hmm. from the modernization that sort of sweeps over other places and you have these vestiges and traditions that are, that kind of linger on there. But yeah, he's, he's a tremendous guy. And also like one of, one of the younger custodians that I've written about, he's, uh, you know, he's not ancient. He's not, he's not 80 <laughs> years old. I'm not worried that he's going to pass tomorrow, but mm -hmm. he's still, he's still kind of doing this all. Mm -hmm. I love that. We're going to link to this story as well. So you guys can check it out, but I have two questions. First, how does this, soy sauce taste compared to the one that we're all used to? Wow. Um, it's kind of like the difference between boxed wine and a really, really mm. nice wine. So there, there's, a, there's a level of kind of nuttiness, of, mm. of richness to it. Whereas anything that you might get, get from like a Chinese carryout or even at a, at a, at a restaurant, is, there's a thinness and a, and a saltiness to it that is very one-dimensional. Mm. This, this tastes like your drinking pure liquid umami which is wow. incredible yeah oh i actually have goodness. some have some here in, in in my home and uh bring it out for very very special occasions knowing that that it might one day one day be gone well that leads me to my second question which is 
can people find it somewhere or do we need to travel mm-hmm. to that island to pick it up or are there like specialty perhaps retailers or importers that carry the traditional sauce actually anyone can get it he uh he ships all over the world and Amazing. interestingly the us is one of his biggest clients the okay. it's interesting what happened is that people in japan were sort of losing this tradition but around the time the craft beer industry started taking off here here in the us he found that sort of craft soy found a resonance here in the us with with customers mm-hmm. that it wasn't in japan mm-hmm. so yeah you can um it's called yamaroku uh, Y-A-M-A-R-O-K-U. That's the name of the company. And he ships it all over. And when I was there, I mean, he's still involved in every bit of the process. He was mm-hmm. shipping boxes to the U.S. And yeah, he would he would love to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. We're going we're gonna to link to that, uh, to, to their website as well, you guys. And I, I, I'm very interested in, in picking, picking up a box myself. You know, lately I've been on the journey of, really understand it's it's funny again because i i I see trends or i see threads of this in almost every aspect of of human experience because another episode of the show that's uh, that's coming out in the future is going to be about olive oil producing and how most of olive oil that we have in our supermarkets is not not real olive oil exactly And, and, and exactly how you were describing, you know, the richness and, and, and all the flavors in this fermented traditional soy sauce versus the thinness of the fast manufacturing one. It's the same conversation that's, that's in the olive oil world. And, you know, and yeah, it's just, it's just fascinating how, how much of, of, of that is happening all around the world. And, you know, but you only also, you only also only have to dig a little bit to find that right it's uh, it's kind of interesting so yeah we'll definitely link to it and i'll i'll check out yamaroku uh, myself as well and you guys should too wow elliot it's such a pleasure talking to you so many fascinating stories that you have up your sleeve i love this oh, <laughs> thank really you beautiful. so uh what are you most excited about in your life right now oh well, I'm excited about this book. You know, I think short of uh, short of convincing my wife to marry me and being a being the dad to my kid, I'm probably the proudest of this of, of anything I've ever done. So I'm I'm really excited about that. I'm excited to be back at BBC. I had a sabbatical for nine months to write this, and I'm I'm thrilled to be back editing stories. And I think from um you know just sort of a month to month basis, I I just love helping maybe younger writers or, or writers from places that don't typically get the coverage to, uh, to take these ideas and really work with writers and help make them sing. So writers from places that might not necessarily be covered in the BBC um, any given month, I, th- I think that working with these people to, to get their story out and to make it as good as it can, that's, that's one of my biggest passions as an, ed- as an editor. So mm-hmm. thrilled to be back and doing that these days. Yeah. And you guys are actually one of the one of the best examples of putting up directions and instructions online on how people can reach out to and what you're looking for. In fact, you know, in the in my teaching role, uh, I always showcase BBC guidelines, BBC travel pitching guidelines as as one of the examples of that, because for, for many years, actually, it's been the case that not a lot of publications had 
any guidelines to how you know to how to reach out to them who to reach out to it's just it's just been such a uh, black box so to speak and so i i always thought that the bbc travel guidelines are an excellent example of of that you know you you're very clear on kind of what kind of stories you're looking for uh, what kind of pitches and how to pitch you, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to link link to the guidelines as well. I'm so glad you you, you said that because when I was a freelancer, I, I felt the same way. But mm-hmm. not only does that help us editors get the types of pitches that we want, but I think that is so important in the general travel journalism world of helping to democratize travel journalism. I think so often you have these publications that when you don't publicize that, it's sort of, it's sort of, continues this trend of travel journalism kind of being the private property of an exclusive few who know an editor at a place or who, who might have some sort of in with something, but that is so antithetical to what I think the idea of travel journalism should be. And I think that BBC travel being, being very smart, much before my time was smart enough to recognize this and to put up kind of explicit directions and that's how we're able to tell these stories from rural Rwanda written by a native Rwandan author um, that might not get the kind of coverage that it, it would somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. You guys were one of the few first, f- one of the first to do that. Now, now more and more publications are doing that. I see more of them kind of opening up their guidelines, but you were really one of the first. And that's, that's really it's progress. Really right? Yeah. Progress. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Um, last question for today. Yes. What gives you hope? Oh, um, well, we're recording this at a time where there's not a lot of hope in the world. But I think what gives me hope is that I, I really believe that travel journalism at its best fosters empathy. It introduces you to places and to people that you might not think twice about, you might find no similarities between you and this person of a different culture who practices a different faith, who works day in, day out to do a different thing that is totally foreign to you. But I think through these stories, you care about who they are, you care about their stories, you connect to them in a way that I think is encouraging for me at a time when we need so much more of that. So. I like to think that we're doing some good in the world by telling these stories and by introducing people to cultures and traditions and customs that ultimately make us better. That's beautiful. I think we're going to leave it right here for today. Thank you so much, Elliot. It was such a pleasure talking to you today. And I wish you all the best with your book with all your projects, and um, I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much. What a lovely conversation. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for listening to our show today, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Elliot Stein. If you want to stay updated on all things Going Places, be sure to visit goingplacesmedia.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter. If you've been enjoying listening to our show, please take a moment to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or share this episode on social media. Our theme music this season of Baril Shams is provided by Rawan Roshni, a Palestinian Balkan singer based in Jordan who experiments across genres. 
Our partner this season is Visit Jordan. My name is Julia Denisius, and I will see you next week.